This is Art Moves. Let me tell you a story, and it's a story that's very dear to my heart because in many ways it changed the direction of my life. And it has to do with BCAT, formerly known as Brooklyn Cable Access Television. One of my very dear friends, Onita Coward Mayers, in her 20s, built out that space. And there are times when I don't think she gets enough credit for it, but she did, and she was a young woman, and she really left a mark in Brooklyn. And she really enjoyed my personality. So one day she called me and she says, you know, Tony, I want you to sub for the Brooklyn Reporter Roundtable. Now, you must promise me that you are going to show. I said, when do I not show? Well, you know, I've got all these crew there. So I went and I was the moderator for, I forget the elected officials, but it was a very robust show. So then... As time went on, she really liked me in that role, and she says, I want you to be a permanent moderator. So we had a kickoff at some restaurant in Dumbo, and I was just really excited about it. I did that for a couple of years, and then Greg Sutton at that time, he was the director of content. He says, you know, Tony, you've got this really great personality. We need to do a show that's like The View. You would be great for that, but we're not going to do it for you. You're going to have to figure it out. That was a dare. And that dare led me to my show called Brooklyn Savvy. So I have a great deal of admiration for the work that Brooklyn Community Access Television, now Brick TV, does through its independent channels because it gives people a voice, it trains them, and I'm just crazy about the work. So I guess welcome to Art Moves, and I guess that art moved me because it is my TV show. So I'm Tony Williams. And I'm Eli Kislansky. And again, welcome to Art Moves. So Eli, you look dashing there with your... Yes, thank you. So you're cutting me off. You're cutting me off. But yeah, you look very good. How are you feeling? I'm great. You know. You ready to get started on this interview? We've got this lovely woman in there here with this gorgeous black Also a member of our advisory group, Uh, which we talked a little bit about. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Yes. So I think at this time, I'm going to just do a little talk about Brick, and then we're going to launch into our guest, Christina Newman-Scott. Now, for over 40 years, Brick has educated, entertained the residents of Brooklyn and beyond. Brick Art Media Brooklyn is an established visual, performing arts, and media organization in downtown Brooklyn. Its plethora of programs reach some 300,000 people. Now, get this, Brooklyn and beyond, with 85% of these people attending for free. Now, where does that happen? I'll tell you, here in Brooklyn. At the helm of this organization is the phenomenal Christina Newman-Scott. I don't know how long we're going to call her new, but yeah, I guess, are you still new, new, Christina? Are you I'm still kind of new. new? No, you're I'm not kind new of anymore. Like I'm I'm new-ish. <laughs> That's right, new-ish. <laughs> I have the ish now. Right. So, welcome, Christina. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here with you both. This is fun. It's going to be even more fun. So, I want to talk to you she a bit. Not, she might not say this after the question. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but, but I'm we're ready. Gonna, hey, we're going to be good to you. We're going to be good to you. I'm stretched. I'm ready for the game. Well, this what, what's that statement? You're tough but fair. Right. Or better yet, you're going to be perfect. Perfect. Yeah, Just I like that. Perfect. 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 <laughs> perfect. So, anyway, Christina... 
talk to us about your journey here to Brick. Now, I know that's a broad question, yeah. but let's start with a story that I've heard you tell okay. about when you were talking to your parents yes. about being a painter or yes. an artist. Yes, okay. I was talking to them about that when I was 18 years old. I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, and so at 18, I was studying the Association of Accounting Technicians. Um, <laughs> exciting. <laughs> it sounds so exciting. And I realized during that process that I didn't want to be an accountant. And I said to my parents, you know, I've always had this passion for art, and I really want to explore art college or you know, creating as an artist. And they thought I was completely crazy. So they said that they were not going to pay for me to go to art college. And oh, wow. so I had to figure it out. And so I did. I got a job, then Federal Express, hmm. as a junior accountant, <laughs> which I promptly... <laughs> That's what, exactly what you didn't want to be doing. Exactly right. But it, I got a job. And I saved up my little summer money and I put myself through night school and art college to prepare Fabulous. a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so my parents saw that I was serious and I was promptly demoted from a accountant because I'm s I was not great at it, okay? And mm -hmm. I became a customer service agent quickly at Federal Express. And long story short, I got into art college after preparing my portfolio and I studied many things, but ended up really choosing painting and installation as the two areas that I focused on. Now, when you were in Boston, yes. you started in being a curator, I believe. No, was. I started, was it? it was in Hartford, Connecticut okay, that that's I started. Okay, that you started curating. Yeah, when right. I moved to the States in 2005, mm -hmm. I became a visual arts coordinator at a place called Real Artways, which was and is a small but really influential and impactful alternative. It's like when organizations that did the arts were known as alternative art centers, you know, when alternative newspapers came about and alternative radio. Yeah, like so alternative it medicine. It's alternative medicine. <laughs> yeah. It came about in the 70s and has a very strong contemporary art program. So I was fortunate when I moved to the States to really develop my curatorial muscle and being an artist and a practitioner of arts, and I did other things too, mm -hmm. TV and radio in Jamaica, you know, I was on my hustle. Right. You know, we are in the gig economy in the right. arts. And so right. when I came here, I already had so much experience. In any event, I became a formal curator working at Real Artways, and I did that for almost six years there, over 80 exhibitions I helped to organize and curate. So what was the inspiration or the switch, if you will, that you said, ah, you know, uh, painting's all right, but this is much more interesting. I'm doing this. Or was there an epiphany or something? Or you know, it's or a financial imperative? Yeah, no. financial imperative. Oh, that's all good questions. I think when my husband and I moved, we moved to Connecticut because his family had a business that his dad had retired and his mother really needed him to return from Jamaica. Uh. Right. So the financial, there was a driver. So, right. so we moved back after we, you know, got married. And I just felt like it was a new community to me. And I wanted to really become embedded in a way that I thought would be really meaningful. And I still kept doing my art, you know, when I had time. But I really wanted to explore more of the arts. And I did that. And that's been my entire career, my curiosity and my interest in better understanding every facet of the creative economy. And so that was really the beginning of my journey as a curator. Do you still make art today or paint, draw? In my mind. In your mind, okay. Yeah. Don't have time. Don't now, time. you yeah. were in Hartford. So I started in Hartford, yes. yeah, and then mm -hmm. I went to Boston. 
Right. And then you were working at, as the in the Art Council in Connecticut, I believe. So, yeah. So, yeah, so after I left Hartford, after being mm-hmm. a curator, I became the director of programs at Boston Center for the Arts. And in that job, I really started to develop my arts administrative mm-hmm. kind of expertise overseeing. Instead of being the curator formally, the curator reported to me as well as, so I had visual performing and arts education and mm. public art, mm-hmm. as well as resident theater. So it was really a fantastic time for me to learn about how I could kind of bump it up one more level and think about kind of process and practice for mm. artists in a different way outside of just curatorial. So I learned that. And then I went back to Hartford to work in arts and government. And See, that's what's confusing. That right. Yeah, yeah. Really. Hartford to Boston, to both something of that nature, yes. Right. It right. was Hartford to Boston. Boston and then back to and Hartford. And back to Hartford. I see. Yeah, I see. and that's where I got my first job in arts and government mm-hmm. as the head of marketing events and cultural affairs. And in that job, that's where I see. So we're still in the arts. We're still in the arts because I made a commitment very early in my career that I would never leave the arts. It is what I'm truly passionate about. And I refuse to leave this world. And so when I moved back to Hartford, being the first Mecca director, I really focused a lot on arts Mm -hmm. and community development, grant making for individual artists, arts and business development. And I learned a lot about mayoral initiatives, challenges in city government, and Mm -hmm. how the arts can make an impact. How does the government in Hartford see arts? The reason I'm asking is because I knew this program director from the Carnegie Foundation and he ran the museum art program. They thought he was a communist. This is what I ask, because, you know, in sort of like Western culture, you know, in this culture that we have here, yeah. it's like, you know, it's like almost like an expression, like, what do you need it for? Do you know what I mean? Well, what don't you need it for? I mean, well, no, I, I, yeah, I'm right. I know you're a, choir, you're but a yeah. you, you get it's it. It's a multi-billion you're, dollar you industry, You are believers. Right? You're believers. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the mayor at the time that I worked for, Pedro Sagara, completely understood the value and the power of the arts mm. and wanting to make it accessible. And he also very much believed in the power of arts education. Mm-hmm. And we saw the increase in graduation rates. We saw the ripple effects. So he was very open to us talking about issues around blight Mm -hmm. and arts, literacy, health. And he himself was a very creative, dynamic leader, so it was good for me. And then after doing that for three and a half years, I was tapped by the governor to be the director of culture for the state of Connecticut. And in that, my portfolio grew exponentially. That's interesting. The director of culture sounds just like a huge title. It was. What does that mean to be a director of culture? So essentially, what it really, if I broke it down, it was two real titles Mm -hmm. underneath that banner. One was the executive director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts. So I was the head of the state art agency. So in New York, it would be like the head of NISCA. I was the head of Connecticut. So Mm -hmm. not only regranting, but policies, Mm -hmm. creating policies that would benefit artists, advocacy for the arts with a loose A, Mm -hmm. because I was in a government role, making sure that you know, that we were working with all of the arts councils across the state. We had nine councils that we worked directly with, so making sure that we understood what was going on on the ground in the arts. And then also I was the executive director of the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officer, overseeing historic preservation as well, which is not common in the nation. The arts person oversees preservation. So that was a very, and again, another opportunity for me to grow, for me to learn more about Mm -hmm. how to better serve artists. At the end of the day, 
I learned so much about economic development because I reported to the head of economic development. And how key the arts are in that area. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, listen, if you go to date night, okay, say you're going to go to date night, you're going to go see a play. And this is a story a lot of people that work in the arts hear from our friends at Americans for the Arts. But you might stop and you buy gas, okay, because your car might need a little gas. <laughs> so you're going to go buy some gas. Then... You're going to go and you're going to have dinner. All in And so play. you're right. having dinner and then you're going to tip that waiter. And then you're going to mm-hmm. go back in your car. You're going to go potentially to a parking garage. Right. So you're going to pay for parking. Then you're going to go in the theater. You're going to have a little down. drink. <laughs> then you have that little drink and then you might yes. tip that person again. Then you see the play and it's intermission. I mean, all of that money mm-hmm. is circulating. circulating. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the impact in New York State, I think it's $90 billion creative economy. Mm-hmm. So the arts impact here, which is higher than retail and shipping, construction, well, warehousing. How right. important it is, right? No, no, no. I Absolutely. Totally I didn't realize it was so high. It's huge. Oh, yeah, it is huge. Is I mean, huge. it includes broadcasting and media as well, So, but it's key. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, the figures for the number of people, and this was told to me by the former president of the American Alliance for the Arts, yeah. in a limousine outside of Dallas, <laughs> that the total number of people who go to cultural events of some kind, which is, you know, science centers, art, history, natural history, 850 million people a year. It's a lot of people. There's 160 million go to zoos and aquarium. 180 go to zoos and aquarium. Mm -hmm. There's only like 120, 140 million people go to all sports games combined. Wow. Yeah, and then you think sports, but... Look no, it's more people mm-hmm. going to cultural centers and sports. Absolutely. But they don't tell that story quite often. And then just think about the people who will say, I'm not an artist, but when they go home, they might paint or they play they music with their children or, or they dance mm-hmm. or yeah, they write yeah, poetry, but they'll never say, mm-hmm. I'm an artist. Think about all those people. That's me people. That's you people. <laughs> uh, well, you got, obviously, yes, yeah. Really? yeah. Absolutely. Right. I thought I was a dentist. <laughs> no, no, but you know, it's interesting to say that, of course, there's a guy who's a famous educator called Ken Robinson. He oh, yeah, I know of Ken Robinson, is, right? for He's sure. Amazing guy. He did a great TED Talk, so how oh, schools yeah. kill creativity. Yep. I loved yeah. his TED Talk. Yeah. He makes a very interesting yeah. point. He says, like, if you go into, like, a class of kindergarten and say to the kids, who's creative, everybody raises their hands. Everybody. Right. And then you get the high school students, maybe two or three, so it's like, what happens? Yeah, so right? much. It's the same so kind of messages, dynamics. Right? So many messages. People don't stop becoming creative. No. It's just a definition starts to limit, I think. It's the definition of it. You know? Well, it's also cultural. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's, it's the same cultural. dynamics they said, oh, you're going to be an artist. Oh, my God. Right. 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 I think it's learned. And I think that, yeah, I think that we don't value the power of creativity. We're doing it more now, but it's just it uh, really a isn't. trait right. that is not as valued as it should be. Absolutely. Now, there's something that makes you extra special, at mm. least in what I've been able to read and when I have my ear to the ground. You are the first immigrant and first woman of color. That's to le- right. So when you hear that, yeah. what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind for me is the space that I need to create for others Mm -hmm. to ensure that there's Mm -hmm. not even a need in the future to say that because the assumption is that there will be so many of us from all walks of life, even if you're not an immigrant or, you know, I just don't want a decade from now for somebody being like, I am the first immigrant and woman of color. It's important for me to think about my replacement parts out the gate and create space for others at the table. And it's also important for me to say and to celebrate that I am a woman of color from another country because, you know, I think that that's something to be proud of. And when you talk about create space at the table, yeah, what do you mean by that? 
I've been in a lot of rooms throughout my arts career in America that I felt like the only one. And I know that this is a common feeling mm -hmm. amongst a lot of executives of color or are whoever. I know that once you're a person of color, you often feel like the only one in your spaces, especially if they're spaces in the corporate sector. I think in the arts and cultural sector, one would assume that isn't that where everybody's so diverse and it's you so... You would think that, would, right? But it's not oh, true. Yeah. It's not. Because right. people in positions of power, and we've seen from the report that was done most recently, shared by the Department of Cultural Affairs here in New York, that, you know, we have a long way to go. And those that are in positions of leadership are not as diverse as we would want them to be, not only in terms of ethnicity, but age socioeconomic background, right. differing abilities. Place of origin. Ja absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, it, there's something... Hang on one second. So it's interesting that I just read I'll something. hang on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's a force of nature. What can I say? Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfecto. Anyway, so I read it recently, very interesting to that note, is that the Baltimore Museum came out and said... Yes. You read about this. Of course right? I did. And, tell, and our, tell our listeners, what is it? The Baltimore Museum came up with this press release that they are only buying oh, works of that. art from yes. women yes. for the year of 2020. Yes. I think that's extraordinary considering that's extraordinary. how much museums struggle with inclusiveness and, you know... I would like them to diversity. do the same thing for people of color, African-American. Well, this is what... Yeah. And when I saw that article, I went, oh, this is great, but... Well, actually, you're seeing, you're seeing to be fair, I've, you're seeing a lot, lot more of that now than, you know, like these grants that people are getting and these shows and inclusion in fairs, inclusion in biennials. It's a lot more diverse than it's been in the last 10 years. So I think it's moving in the right direction. It's moving in the right direction, but the pace, I want to see a yeah. more rapid pace. And I would like to see that kind of intentionality. Yeah. Well, it's like Christine said, it's like mm -hmm. who, like, and I said this in the previous podcast, who runs these things? Well, mm -hmm. exactly right. And that's why the spaces at the table are so important, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, I just wanted to kind of double back because there's something that you celebrate or that you have witnessed in your organization Brick is the fifth largest proportion of diverse staff yeah. out of 50 cultural organizations in this, I guess, in New York City. Yeah. So it sounds as though you are walking the talk. Talk to us about what it takes to manage this really diverse team of people. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a really good question. And I think that we're really lucky and fortunate it was intentional in many ways. We do have an extremely diverse staff. I have a staff, a full-time staff right now, about, let's call it 120. Well, and the majority right. of my mm -hmm. staff is of color. That being said, having come into the role 15 months ago, it's been important for me to even, uh, to deepen my engagement with the team, to hear what some of the issues and challenges that they're facing, because it's great that we are diverse, but we also want to talk about how do we create diversity, equity, and inclusivity strategy that's action-oriented? How do we make sure that our teams have professional development pathways, right? So we're not just like, oh, we're diverse, great. Yeah, but so we're right. looking at the internal structures. And so, you know, I've created an internal policy committee that we're looking at all of our policies and practices, some of my government hat work, while still being very organic and, you know, we're not trying to be heavy-handed. But I do think, right, it's just like your household, you know, how you run your household says a lot about who you are mm -hmm. and how you show up in the world. And so I think Brick as an institution, it's great that we are that. And it's great that we have all these languages. But I also want our people across the board, not only the ones of color, but all of them to understand how they can grow, how we invest in them, 
What are the issues? So your organization isn't flat. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how do you grow your folks? Because I think that's, well, that's always what a we're challenge doing. organizations like Well, yours. we just presented our strategic plan that was approved. Thank you very much. Tony's on our board. <laughs> yes. And a champion of uh, yes. the plan. And I'm very excited. And so uh, one of the goals of this plan is to really articulate what we're calling a DEI action plan. And so within that, we are bringing in consultants to do some equity work training to do one-on-one staff meetings but we've also since I've been there done a survey like we have these internal what we call racial equity work groups where things get to bubble up and our community owns this it's not like we're saying oh DEI check but we're saying it's how you live and breathe it's authentic, it's authentic I'm loving and hearing it this is informed by the people and it's not just our people of color it is cross-departmental. It is all the people. And it's important, even more so, to ensure that all of us are allies for one another How beyond is that, ethnicity, that, that's, that's too. That's so interesting. How is it being received? Because I remember there were some issues back in the day in BRICS history where there were just issues. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's so good to hear that your leadership is addressing this. So I think that out the gate, coming from doing a strategic plan for the mm-hmm. state of Connecticut called READY, Relevance, Equity, Access, Diversity, and Inclusion, it is one of my core kind of leadership focuses is to ensure that I'm doing this work. And so mm-hmm. it's just when y'all hired me, that's what's going to come with right, m- right. with hiring me. And I think that m- you must have my that. team <laughs> sees <laughs> that that's authentic mm-hmm. and that I'm willing to have hard conversations. And I'm willing to say, I don't know. Tell me. Like, allow me to, like, learn. Even though I know some things, I don't know everything. So I think how it's being received extremely well. Mm-hmm. I think we are continuing to invest time and resources to make sure it gets better and better, but we're not doing it in a vacuum and it's going to be across the entire institution. So it's Mm -hmm. senior leadership. I'll give you a small example of a small change that is impactful. When I just got hired, we have front of Maurice who takes is the head of our custodial team is phenomenal. He takes care of our building, all Mm -hmm. 40,000 square feet of it with the team that he works with. Maurice wasn't part of the walkthroughs of the exhibition with the curatorial team. Who do you think when people come into the building that they ask questions? They're going to ask my security team. They're going to ask Maurice as he's out and about taking care of things. On the floor, right? More than on the floor. Else, right. Or they're going to ask the cafe staff. Right. And they're going to ask reception. That's the face of your organization. And a lot of times in nonprofits, it's so easy to overlook folks yes, that are the face. Between them and right? the curatorial because staff. Here's the yeah, cu- right. right. And it wasn't because my curatorial team didn't want to. They just didn't think they about just, it. It's just a blind spot. Yeah, so for me, it wasn't about mm, blame right, or right. anything like that because they received it so beautifully. And they said, of course, we would love to do that. He's a core member of our team. That little shift empowers people, makes them feel like they have ownership. Mm-hmm. They can articulate what the show is about, especially if it's a complex show. It's those little things. So it's addressing from what one might think is little, which I, you know, has potential impact on how a staff mm-hmm. member feels as part of a community, to major things around salary equity. It's all of it. Just for people who may not know to explain what DEI is. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Diversity, equity, and inclusion work. No, so no, I understand. Yeah. Some people might not know. Right. But the other thing is interesting what you say about Maurice Puss, especially in, in like an e-commerce economy and stuff where people can say a lot of things online. 
It reminds me of a story about when you have those people be feel self-empowered, like yeah. people like Maurice, it creates a huge shift. Huge. I'll, I'll give you an interesting story I heard. You know, one of our clients, you know, I have a company called Unified Field. We do interactive multimedia. Yeah. One of our clients is the National World War II Museum. And they were telling us a story about this couple, this elderly couple who came to New Orleans for the first time, showed up at the National World War II Museum. And one of the floor people, like Maurice, saw they were very unhappy. Now, they have an amazing culture, right? And he asked them, well, you know, you don't seem to be having a good time. Explain to them that they got robbed, right, at the hotel they were at. Oh, no. Right? So now, here's the difference in that shift. So he went and told the head of visitor services at the museum. And they went ahead without telling these people. They called the visitor bureau. They changed their hotel. They got them free dinner at restaurants. And then they found them on the floor again and told them what they did. Wow. Yeah. So See? this is, right. So this is the power. Now you can imagine the shift about their perception. Not only that's with them, but we're in the field. For us, that's like, wow. You know, I tell that story dozens of times because I'm so blown away by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a question that I've had as you've been talking because we're talking about shifts in power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with issues around fragility? You know, the idea that some folks may say they're authentic, but how do you deal with the little murmurs that do go on mm-hmm. when you change a culture? Mm-hmm. Or do you address it? Or you know, or, or do you choose not to address it? Well, Just there's different ways to address it, and it all depends on what the murmurs are. Mm-hmm. I think that people love the idea of change agents, and no one is comfortable truly with change. Absolutely. Oh, it's like the word innovation. That is, <laughs> Let's yes. Let's be innovative. Yes, I'm like, so, <laughs> you know. These things are never like comfortable. It's if not. you've been used to it's thinking and responding. Yeah, so I think that is very natural, right, to have that because when you're shifting culture, you can't shift it. You have to build movements and movements are powered by people and especially if you're empowering people in an institution that you don't want to be hierarchical, even though, of course, there's leadership and there are people that are in positions of power, like myself, and, of course, I have a leadership team, but you create this space. It depends on the murmurs, right? So I find that transparency, and to my detriment, <laughs> I'm transparent to my detriment. I can tell but that I that's lead a good thing. into transparency. Yes. So important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Now, there's another, mm-hmm. a, hang on a second, there's another aspect to it. Hang on again. Hang on again. Hang you on. know what, now he, well, you know what it is? you hang on. Well, you know what it is? No, here's the deal. No, she's amazing. So she, You're but she, she's so I'm used perfect. to doing, <laughs> she's perfect, but she's so used <laughs> to doing the, the, the Brooklyn Savvy yes. that she doesn't have a co-host. So it's like, uh, I, he's feel like I feel like I'm home. You're hearing from him, right, you know? Brooklyn? <laughs> you're, you're, hearing, you're hearing from him, Brooklyn and beyond. No, no, well, listen, I grew up with two women, you know, Russian Jewish women who were brilliant. You know, and also powerful beings, and mm-hmm. like, you know, he you knows he knows his place in the yeah. I know how to jump in there. <laughs> so I gotta always forget it. <laughs> Turn into a monk. All right. So, <laughs> but I think yeah. there's another aspect which is interesting. Yeah. I'm sure you have a great question, Tony. But the thing is that it's almost like people try to, you know, especially organizations deal with the, you know, the content and the organization and right. how the things work. But there's almost like an, if you will, ontological, like the being part of it, which is. How do you be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Yeah. Because Isn't that that's, the truth? Yeah. That's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. because you want to really make a change to something, it's really uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. so much easier to fake your way 
through. Well, act as if. But how would you? How would you? It's. How would you deal with that, though? How would you? you, With what? Good question. What would you put in place to get people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Well, that's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) That's what. That's what we're doing right now at Brick. This strategic plan. That's part of very much absolutely. And then my leadership style has already made people feel uncomfortable in terms of the space that I've created for all my staff. So you'll have, you know. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, one of our TV operators or somebody at the cafe or a senior leadership member. You get the best out of people when they feel like they're part of Isn't something. Very, very true. And you have to mm-hmm. be real. People can feel and see when you are not being authentic, right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. know fake when you see it. And especially in a place like New York, you can't come to New York and fake your way through anything. Well, especially and so Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn is going to yeah. tell. So for me, yeah. I just, I think that that's what we're trying to do. And I will make mistakes. I will learn. I will get back up. But that's that part of being transparent. I mean, literally, even this morning, a young woman asked me to go to breakfast with her. She is a team member at Brick. And, you know, I asked her, she's at the beginning of her leadership journey. And I said to her, what would you do about this if you were me? She has never even been, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great question. And humbling in a lot of ways. And she had had thoughts. And I was like, those Hmm. are interesting thoughts. Absolutely. You know, but people don't take the time to say or to ask somebody else who's at the beginning or the middle of their journey. Because the assumption is in some places that you know more. And I love knowing that I'm not the smartest person in the room ever. I know what I know, but right. there's so much I can learn. Yeah, best leaders are that. Tony, should we just talk a little bit about the content there? Yeah, I, you know what, though? I wanted yeah, one more yeah, one sure. more little thing, yeah. which was this idea of, and I'm going to focus now on African Americans and arts mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. There are those who say the money's not great. That's why you don't see us there. Why do you think that? Well, I think we're moving in that direction, but what do you think it was that caused us not to really feel that arts management was a career that we could thrive in? Because it's a career that has always seemed, even though, you know, that it was for people who already came from means. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a career that you saw, you know, when you grow up and you think about kind of what traditional successful jobs are, right? It's like you're in the medical field, you're in banking, you're in real estate, Maybe you're an architect. That was kind of the thing in Jamaica, too. If you went into the creative culture, you'd be an architect, right. not an artist. <laughs> because the real money is in architecture. Would you say it's a more practical place than most places? Or? In what? Arch- what? Jamaica? Or? No, it's no. just a, it's Stan- one of these like traditional, traditional right? you okay. know, we, you know, colonial, you know, in very <laughs> many ways still there and present. But I do think that a lack of education, a lack of proximity to true artistic experiences. And even though, even in America today, the busing in of children to watch the thing, to look at the walls, to see the art, and there's no true engagement. Mm -hmm. So then you don't learn about the jobs, all of the things, when you watch a movie or a cartoon, whatever you're watching, all the credits, those are jobs. Those are jobs. Absolutely. Those are all jobs. The, no one talks about that. I remember mm. when I was in Jamaica mm-hmm. and I got my first job working on a movie 
And I was making real, well, by, I was like, almost, I think I was 20 or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I was making like 800 US a week. <laughs> and that was like, what? Like, and that was working as a part of a team in the art department for a movie. But I remember thinking my entire time at college, I never even knew that that was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. There's a right. lack of understanding because there's a lot of assumptions about how you make it in the art world and what the actual the jobs. And there's a lot of jobs that you'll get more than Absolutely. your minimum wage. There's so many jobs in the creative sector that pay well. But it's also knowing what's possible because right. you know it's a question of expanding people's world to know. A hundred percent. I want to piggyback on where you were going, Where's and it? it has to do with, <laughs> do you see... has no bus service there, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Delays. Um, do you see yourself as curating culture here in Brooklyn, as you have That's stated a great question. you did yeah, no, in absolutely, Connecticut? Right. I really wanted to get to you that. You know, And the I, differences, mm-hmm. right? Difference. I can tell you this. I mean, I don't know if I see myself and my new arts practice as a curator of arts administration. So I see myself as somebody that thinks about opportunities for artists to become for nonprofits, even though we are one, how do we become more supportive and less gatekeepers for artists and more gate openers? I think about from my position of power, how can I truly serve artists and creators? Mm -hmm. So because I'm still so new to Brooklyn, I wouldn't go as far to say as I think that I'm curating culture here in Brooklyn Mm because Brooklyn is such a culturally rich and dynamic city. I think one of the most rich, (laughs) which makes it even better. I was born here. Right, right. It makes it even even better. better, But I think it's just one of the most extraordinarily vibrant communities in our world. So for me, I think that what I need to focus on is truly thinking about how we serve audiences and artists and how do we remove these invisible walls that exist between the receiver of culture and the creator of culture. How do we make space? And I think Brick has done that for a long time. Brick knows and has done a good job of creating that space for that mashup to happen. And yeah, I felt that, which is I've why it's a mashup. Yes. But you were also, you're also talking about the difference in between, in some ways, the curation. And it's interesting when you talk about it because... You know, when you say arts administrator, I think it's, you know, a bureaucrat right, and right, doing hard right, infrastructure right, stuff and right. moving things around, it's logistics, but it's, you know, you're almost curating it like an art exhibit. Totally. Right. I think mm-hmm. about you know I, mean? I think mm-hmm. about these in-between the, spaces a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're, also, and you're asking, Tony, to a certain extent, is like, okay, so what was it? It's almost like, okay, now we have an outdoor space, now we have an mm-hmm. indoor space. It's in between Connecticut curation and Brooklyn curation. What do you see as the distinction between those two? And I how do you approach them differently, or do you? I definitely, That's what you were asking, I right? think that yeah. I take That's part of a it. lot of part learning of <laughs> from my 50%. government job. <laughs> but I think, you know, in this position, this brings me back to my nonprofit world, right? Mm-hmm. When I was a curator and program director in the arts, I think that, you know, my government jobs were very much policy oriented. Mm-hmm. They were very aligned with priorities of government leaders, like mayors and the governor. In this position, my priorities are artist-based and artist-centered and how can BRIC benefit and wow. continue to benefit. So I work 
you know, I before see. instead of working right. for the governor, mm-hmm. I work for artists. I work for creators. They're the reason why this place exists, and they're the reason why my job exists. So I very much have taken that, you know, public service passion that I had in the arts and brought it to this position in very much thinking about how can I serve you better? How can Brick serve you better? Now, there's a quote that as I was doing my research on you, <laughs> because you're perfect. That's <laughs> You talk about human-centered design methodology, people-formed vision. Now, what does that mean? It's essentially really tuning into the people that are your end user, so to speak, to Mm -hmm. use that language. The people that are using either your product or the beneficiary of your services, the people who are going to help you figure out how to do it better. So for me, when I learned about human-centered design through national art strategies, years ago I did a fellowship with them, It was just a game changer because I started to think about people often want to solve problems out the gate without taking a moment to step back from the problem. It's true. And that's our reflex. It's a reflex, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you go to and let's this is probably a bad analogy and you're you'll help me with this. But if (laughs) you go to an ATM machine, right, right, and you put your card in the ATM machine, it spits it back out. It's not working. You're immediately annoyed and you think that there's something wrong with the ATM machine. So you're going to tell the manager, whoever there at the bank or wherever, your ATM machine is broken. You better call the, the service guy because mm-hmm. it's broken, right? And that's kind of out the gate. We just make assumptions about problems. Mm-hmm. But maybe if you spend a little time, you'll find out that it's the wiring under the building that hmm. comes from Doing three miles dive, down right. the street. Mm-hmm. And what your problem is has nothing to do with the machine, mm-hmm. but it has to do with a building that's 42 years old, that vacant. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? It's like, so with this processes that I've brought in, it really has helped me in Connecticut, in Hartford, to do the kind of work we're doing in the arts and now at Brick to step back and to really think about what are the opportunities and what are the challenges mm-hmm. and how might we kind of, you know, move the needle on those things well, in a holistic right. way. Hearing you speak is just fantastic. I just love everything that you've said. Now, let's talk a little bit about what's new. What's new? 75 Rockwell. Hello. Let's talk about 75 Rockwell. 75 Rockwell Mm -hmm. is amazing. Our Mm -hmm. new incubator space for community media artists. We're going to be doing very soon our first cohort of media artists. We'll have three, and we're very excited about that space. That space is going to be dedicated to people who have developed a language proficiency in media and really can benefit from our resources. So somebody like you, Tony, you know how media works. If you were doing (laughs) a project that you're like, you know what, I really just need to Mm -hmm. kind of finesse this. Mm -hmm. It's less about doing the kind of on-the-ground education, which we do every single day in our community media center with Mm -hmm. up to a 1,000 people a week. This media incubator space is going to be much more about offering guidance and fellowship and mentorship for people who have a developed, you know, developed language on wants to spend kind of time on a specific project. Right. You're familiar with mm-hmm. the new museum newing program? No, I don't know the Ooh, program. You should talk to them. I'm, right. I'm one of the mentors right. there, but it's I will, a lot I will of ways. write this down. Exactly what they're doing. It yeah. It's a great program. So I we're like it. coming now, in close. Now, well, you know, there's something else I wanted to, there's a quote that you did that I just loved. And I wanted what you to is it? create a space where all people feel welcomed, inspired, and connected not only to their communities, but to the power and potential. 
potential of the arts. Yep. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh power. So power what, when you say, yeah, yeah, speak to us about that. I just, listen, I've been um, very fortunate in my life to feel that, you know, and I think everyone in this room and people in general can, uh, can talk about when you have this, this moment that's transformative, when you see something, feel something, experience something in the arts, it is a moment that mm-hmm. deepens your connection to the place that you call home. It is a moment that potentially is the thing that makes you feel at home. Hmm. And I believe that some of the, the most powerful moments come from artistic interventions and artists that are... Have you had that experience? Oh, my God. I've been Tell so lucky. Tell us the story lucky. about your, your experience on that level. It's deeply spiritual, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. What, like, which one would I pick? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Take okay. your time. Hold and on. If, and, and you're right. Which one would I pick? You can even make one up. No, I'm not going to make one up. I am not going to make one up. We can make one up for her. I'm not going to make one up. Okay, I'll tell you a quick one. So I worked with this artist, Margarita Correa, years ago in Hartford. We were doing a public art project, five national artists, national and international artists doing public art projects in Hartford, Connecticut, when I was at Real Art Ways. This artist uh, is from Portugal, and she recreated um, these album covers from when she was growing up hmm. and put them on the light post, right, on the street in Hartford that is predominantly Portuguese, right? Oh, so she recreated um, these album covers, and then we did a soundscape where she played the music from a DJ that she grew oh, up wow. listening to in Portugal, mm. who she played played so it was recreating Portugal from a time, a moment Very in cool. time, in a contemporary moment. So when people came out of the church, they heard it. It transported them back. Now, even though I'm not Portuguese, when I walked down that street, when I saw the Portuguese community looking at the album covers, listening to the music, feeling like in some way they were transported, that yeah, gave me right. goosebumps and made me feel connected to a culture that it was my first time really thinking thinking about this community in the way that I had, that brought me closer. Well, I tell you, what a great place to start because I think, Eli, this is some art that moved her. Yeah, here's how close you stayed. I love it. Yes. So I personally want to thank you. I'm sure Tony would feel the same. It's been an amazing chat. Oh, I love this. Amazing. You guys have me on any time. Oh, don't say that. I come hang out with y'all <laughs> any time. Yes. Well, we might have to get you back. So. Yes. <laughs> Art Moves is produced in partnership with Snaps Meteor and the Brooklyn Arts Council. Find some art that moves you and share it.